Welcome to episode 43 of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. In this episode, our Princeton Podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, welcomed Marna Seltzer, the Artistic and Executive Director at Princeton University Concerts whose mission is to educate, challenge, inspire, and unite audiences through the presentation of exceptional classical musicians. Marna discussed Princeton University Concert's history of more than a century at the university, its mission to connect all students to the arts while providing public audiences the opportunity to experience the arts at Princeton as well. Marna also described some of the upcoming performers and performances scheduled for the 2023-2024 season of Princeton University Concerts. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, Marna Seltzer, for episode 43 of the Princeton Podcast. Marna, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So first question. What was the actual start for Princeton University concerts, and you know when, when did that happen? So that happened in 1894. <laughs> so we're, we're going back quite a ways. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Princeton University concerts is, if not the one of the oldest continuous running concert series in the country. Um, I looked it up, and I saw that 1894 was actually the year that the borough became independent from the township. I know the borough doesn't exist anymore, but um, interesting that those two things came together at the same time. Uh, And it was started by a wonderful woman whose name was Philena Phobes Fine. She was the wife of Henry Fine, who may be known to Princetonians, especially on campus, because there is a a Fine Hall. Um, I believe he was the dean of the faculty at that point. And she had a vision that she wanted to bring classical musicians to Princeton for the audience to enjoy. And she gathered a bunch of her friends. They were called the Lazy Ladies Musical Committee. <laughs> and um, the first concert took place in Borough Hall. I was hoping maybe you could tell me actually what that was in 1894. I'm not even sure. Well, I'm trying to think. It was a great performance. I remember it well, but uh, no, <laughs> I don't know what the Borough Hall was then. <laughs> yeah, I guess I maybe assumed it was somewhere on Nassau Street. Uh, maybe the building, the I'm sure that I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Anyway, they start. They started the first concerts. The inaugural season was took place in in Borough Hall, and that happened for many years until 1929, when Miss Phobes died. And at that point, she the women all came together and established a fund in her memory, and they left us a charter, which basically says that. Princeton University Concerts would use that money to secure for Princeton audiences better music than they could otherwise afford. And, you know, that can, like, remarkable amount of foresight that these women came together and left a small pot of money, which has grown since 1894 and really is the basis of what keeps Princeton University Concerts running today. Um, In 1929, we moved our concerts to McCarter. And they took place in McCarter for a very, very long time. And then um, 
it wasn't really until the 50s that the series became organized as a business. It was until, gosh, um, I think the 80s, always run by a woman. Hmm. And there was a very dedicated, amazing woman whose name um, was Maida Pollock, is Maida Pollock. She actually lives in Hawaii now. She retired many years ago. Um, but it was um, her desire to make sure that the concerts always had a really appropriate venue. And it was her vision that raised the money to renovate Richardson Auditorium to what it is today, which is really one of the best concert halls in the country, maybe if not the world. And so in 1952, after that renovation, we moved from McCarter into Richardson and we've been there ever since. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, a long time. We're, yeah. So we're celebrating 130 years next year. That's great. Yeah. So what's your role with the Princeton University Concert? So I'm I'm the director, um, and that means that I kind of oversee everything that happens with the concert series, and that includes programming and fundraising and marketing and production and curation. Um, I have a staff, a wonderful staff that I work with, and it's a very collaborative effort. It's grown a lot. I landed here in 2010, and when I first got here, there were eight concerts, and next year we have 36 events. Mm -hmm. So we've really expanded a lot. Um, and... It is a wonderful job. I, I absolutely love it. I um, This is a remarkable community. It's a community that's full of people who are intellectually curious and smart and dedicated to the arts. Um, and that's a great milieu to be in when you're thinking about programming concerts. Right. I, I know you may have already answered this question, but I'm going to ask it just in case. As to far as what is the vision of Princeton University concerts? I mean, I know you talked a little earlier about. Yeah, what, I mean, um, so you know, we we do live by the original mission. It is closely aligned to what we look like today. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think if I had to boil it down, I would say the mission is to bring exceptional classical musicians from all over the world to Princeton, to present them in a space that has an incredible amount of intimacy and magic and allows for this um, incredible exchange to happen between the musicians and the audience. And most importantly, the, the part about that was in the original charter about exceptional musicians that audiences can't otherwise afford, yeah. access is still a really, really big part of Princeton University concerts. So ticket prices are by far the lowest. Um, it is not uncommon to have a musician who's performing at Carnegie Hall the night before, night after, and to make a stop on our series and for the ticket price to be a, th a third, if not lower, than right. than it would be if you went into New York City. That's a great so thought. yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, very commendable. <laughs> so, um, Princeton University is in your name. So, can you kind of explain? I mean, when did the university affiliation start, and how does yeah. that work out? Or um, so the the university affiliation has been there since the beginning. We um, are housed in the Department of Music. Um, we have an interesting sort of governance structure. We um, 
again, part of this ladies musical committee sort of set the trajectory that is still there today. We have something called the Princeton University Concerts Committee, which is made up of kind of equal parts of university leadership and university staff who are dedicated to the arts and town sort of town gown relationship and um they oversee the endowment and you know steward the money and make sure we're spending it according to the, <laughs> to the original plan yeah. um but we are a part of the university so we are not a separate 501c3 or a separate nonprofit um we have a really unusual uh governance structure for a university concert series. Most are, you know, a, a standalone nonprofit that has some kind of dotted line relationship to, but we are, and have always been a part of the university. Right. Okay. So, I mean, you, you pointed out the long, the incredible length of time <laughs> that the group has been run by women. I mean, that, I mean, that, that's worth, I think, focusing on a, yeah. on a little bit more. I mean, you know, as far as <laughs> from creating and managing yeah. Yeah, Forever. no. I mean, it ha I should say it hasn't always been the case. Yeah. The person who ran the series right before I took the job was there for 22 years, Nate Randall. I think he's the sole male. And so in 130 years there's been one male. Um Well, that's allowed, I guess. <laughs> Just the one. <laughs> Absolutely. Um but yeah, I I feel I feel the weight of that responsibility and I feel actually really honored to be able to carry on that tradition and I um I do believe that if you look at any kind of arts organization in this country, that the ones that are the longest lasting and the most potent have been run by, you know, a single visionary person, and it tends to be women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think in the early days, it was the women looking for an outlet for something to do while their husbands were teaching and running the university. Obviously that's changed during the pandemic. We did uh, a lot of online programs and it caused me to go back and look in the archives more than I ever had. And I learned fun facts. Like there was a point in time in which the women sat upstairs and the men sat downstairs oh and <laughs> they were required to wear long skirts and if you've been in Richardson Auditorium, you know there's no elevator, and there are two very circular, windy turrets that yeah. are a lot of steps hard to get up. So yeah. I just think of like this procession of women in their long skirts and their high heels making their way up to the, you know, a long, a long commitment. <laughs> Interesting how in the past that those kind of rules, and you yes. just wonder what was the. What the heck was the thought process? Yes, I'm glad that's changed. Yeah, yeah, good thing, good thing. Um, all right, so how about a little bit about you? Are you from this area? I am. <laughs> um, I didn't ever imagine I would come back, but um, I grew up in the Midwest, but my parents moved to Princeton in 1978. So I went to one year of what was then John Witherspoon Middle School, no, no longer, and to Princeton High School. Um, I played in the orchestra. Interestingly, I played in the Princeton High School Orchestra and the Princeton University Orchestra under Michael Pratt, who is still the conductor of the Princeton University wow. Orchestra to this day. Um, I played the violin. I also played in the Mercer County Youth Orchestra. And um, 
I, I'm sitting right now at this very moment in a real full circle moment. My daughter's about to graduate from Princeton High School. I went to the Senior Awards the other night, and it's a remarkable reminder of how many awards are named after teachers that I had when I was in high school. Um, you know, students that 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 I went to school with. Um, it's funny, funny to see her kind of follow in my footsteps. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I so I grew up here and um, went away for college and never imagined that I would come back. You mm -hmm. know, I, I kind of typ typical college student who thought I'll never move home. Yeah. Um, but I grew up going to the concerts and I remembered them fondly. And a lot of my career in the beginning of it was involved in helping to facilitate concerts in other cities and towns across the country. And so Princeton University Concerts was one of my clients. So the person who had my job before me was someone that I sold artists to. So I, you know, I was in touch. I knew what was coming, going on. Whenever, whenever I came home to visit yeah. my parents, I'd go. And when the job opened, I, I jumped. And I, it's, it's, it's still a great, it was a great place to grow up and it's a great place to live. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Amazing how that comes, <laughs> comes around. Um. All right, so all right, you kind of answered this one, but let's talk a little bit more about Richardson Auditorium. Mm. As I said, where would one typically go to see performances? Yeah. But so are they all at Richardson or do you do? Pretty much. Um, we, we move out if the situation dictates. Um, that doesn't happen very often. Almost everything takes place there. And I will say that when we move out, um, I mean, there's always a good reason, like we have a vocal ensemble and they sound remarkable in the chapel. So we've done a lot of concerts in the chapel. And um, as you know, we have a new Lewis Arts Complex on campus. There aren't technically performance spaces in there, but every once in a while, it makes sense for us to move to use something like that. But it's pretty hard to beat Richardson Auditorium. Yeah. Yeah. The acoustics are incredible. The visibility is incredible. And there's something about that shape. I've gone to a lot of concerts in my life and I I don't know that I could like I'd love to see some scientific study on this but something about you know when you're sitting and listening to a concert and you can look into an audience member's eyes as well as what's going on on stage there's a communal experience and a, just a a shared experience um, um one of our patrons a few years ago described it to me as a big hug and that that has that has stuck yeah. with me because I think it's true. There, there's, um, you know, you can sit in what would be considered the nosebleed section of Richardson, you know, the far right balcony, very back row, and it still feels incredibly yeah. intimate. So it's just it's a really special space. Musicians who come and play in there remark on it all the time, and we're presenting musicians who literally perform in every concert hall all over the world, and they always say, "Wow." You know, um, and I, I think that's a sort of a combination of acoustics, but also that connective experience that you can have from the stage. Yeah, it is a great setting. Yeah. Um, so I guess the whole focus is on classical music and just classical music, and that just goes back to day one? Or? It does go back to day one. Um, I think over the last 10 years, probably one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we have really tried to define that more broadly um, in lots of different ways. Um, I think, you know, we we like to think of ourselves as presenting chamber music, and not everybody knows what that means, but chamber music technically means one to a part. 
Um, but in terms of experience, it just means that um, each performer is sort of engaged in their own role and their share of the performance in a, a very intense way. It tends to be very conversational, very intimate in nature. There's no conductor. So, um, you know, the onus is all on the musicians and they need to stay in touch with each other throughout an entire performance. And you can see and hear that happening. Um, so we think about, or I like to think about, you know, that characteristic being embedded in everything we do, but we don't define it at, at, at 1894, they defined that as a string quartet, you know, a vi two violins, viola and cello. And that was what the series was for me I mean, 30, 40 years, mm -hmm. you know, next year we have a jazz pianist, we have a harpsichord player, we have a singer, we have multiple pianists. Like we, we have an orchestra, like, we, you know, we, we think about that, um, in a, in a broader way, and I think that's that's really important, especially in terms of engaging audience and making people feel like it's something that they can relate to. Um, so how do I, as someone eager to make sure I know what every <laughs> performance is, so how do I keep track of, of what you're offering? Um, well, we have a website. <laughs> that address is puc.princeton.edu. Um you know, we have all of the traditional marketing things. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. Um, you can pick up any of our brochures that are all over the place. Lots of people on campus joke that if there's not a poster for something, it didn't happen. There's a real poster culture. I'm sure you know that as mayor, <laughs> as you think about the kiosks on Nassau Street. Um, you know, so there's, there's lots of ways to actually figure out what is coming and and when um but you know that doesn't necessarily get people through the door yeah. <laughs> right yeah. um so i think really at the heart of princeton university concerts is a really deep desire to figure out how to make our concerts as relevant to as many people as possible and to allow people to make their own personal connections to our programs. So I think when you look at our season, what you will see is that there are a lot of concerts, but there are also a lot of ways in which we're sort of extending a hand and inviting people in, in all sorts of ways. Um, do you want me to? Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that, I think that'd be interesting to share. Okay. So, um, there are lots of different ways that you can ex experience our events. Um, you know, what started out as kind of a single concert series really has has changed a lot. And we have, for instance, a concert series that we call Performances Up Close, which takes place on the stage with the audience on the stage. And we can fit about 150 people on stage in a, usually in a circle, although it changes a lot. Um, they're hour long concerts. One happens at six, one happens at 9 PM. And they're really, really um, it geared at sort of breaking down what people think of as sort of traditional obstacles to going to a concert. So they're informal. We ask the artists to talk about themselves, to talk about the music. They're engaging and Again, 
you know, that visual thing that we talked about, there's something kind of remarkable that happens when you get really up close with a musician and you kind of see what kind of work it takes and you see the sweat and the, you know, the love. And um, those concerts tend to be very diverse in their presentation. Um they're just much more experimental. We, we've had a bagpipe player. Last year, we had a wonderful saxophone mm. player. Um, we had, uh, a couple of years ago, a pianist with a tap dancer. So we tend to be able to kind of experiment a little bit with the programming as well. Um, so that's a really good way to kind of test PUC out if you just kind of want to dip a toe in. It's It's not a huge commitment, an hour long, you know, you can go right after work. We see a lot of students at nine o'clock, you know, mm -hmm. who've been studying all evening and then come over for a later night thing. Um, we started last year a program called Do Re Meet. It is a series of um, social events that are attached to the concerts. Um, it started out as a speed dating plan and it has expanded from there and it is really about fostering connections over a shared love of music so we have um, a bunch of ways that we do that one is traditional speed dating we actually partnered with a woman who runs the singles group in new jersey it's the largest singles group in new jersey her name is risa grimaldi she's a matchmaker she's lovely and wonderful and um people come and they are divided into sort of age categories and they go through a series of speed dates mm. and a small reception and then they go to the concert together and at the end of the evening um they fill something out and they make all sorts of connections they can say i'm really interested in this person romantically or I just want a business contact or I just want a, a friend. Um, we also do a friendship version of that, a speed friending where it is, has the kind of speed dating um, uh, set up, but it's, it's about making friends. Right. People, we, we hear a lot. Um, we have a very, very loyal core of subscribers and we hear a lot from them that, they stop going when a partner, a husband, a wife passes away or um, they can't drive at night or right. what, you know, whatever yeah. reason, but they don't want to go alone. And so part of part of this was was aimed at, at that. Uh, we are opening our Do Re Meet season this year with an LGBTQ plus mingle. So Do Re Meet is another is another, you know, great way to like put a foot in. Um we also run a live music meditation program that happens over the lunch hour. It's free. It involves all the musicians who play on our series. It is um, a partnership with the Office of Religious Life on campus. Um, and it's, a again, an hour-long thing. It can be 30 minutes. You come in. Everybody's there's someone who leads it. His name is Matt Weiner. He's one of the associate deans of Religious Life. He just... Um, talks to the audience about kind of finding a sense of stillness, finding a sense of quiet. Um, and then there's about five minutes of silence and the music just sort of emerges from that silence. Um, music goes on for about 25 minutes. There's another five minutes of silence. And then there's a short discussion about the experience. And um, first of all, we never come out of that thinking, gosh, I wish all of our concerts were like this because there's such a sense of focused listening. Like people are prepared and ready to listen. Um, the musicians always say that they 
really appreciate not having the performative aspect. There's no clapping, there's no bowing, all of which, you know, in some ways kind of take you out of the experience. So to be just present in that moment and listening to the music in an intense way. Um, we have people who come because they're serious meditators and have never heard classical music before. And we have people who are super classical music fans and have never meditated before and everything in between. But it is another example of kind of the music itself is great, you know, but the experience yeah. is changed up a little bit and it helps people kind of get through the door. Um, we run something called the Creative Reactions Contest. It is a creative writing contest. It started out being for Princeton students, um, and it now has extended to the community and to our audience. And um, it's also extended to visual art. And it's the only thing we ask, really, is that people use our concerts as their source of inspiration. They can write a poem. They can write a short story. They can draw a picture. Or they can make, choreograph a dance. Um and, you know, so people come into the concert hall also with a different set of ears and eyes when they're doing that, too, when they know that they're working on something that's intensely personal to them and that they're going to share with other people. So there's a lot of kind of thinking about, like, how how do we reach out and and change up the experience a little bit so that people feel like they belong when they come into the concert hall. It's amazing. I mean, you never guess that. All of that would be included. <laughs> Just reading your name would be like, wait a minute, okay, but way beyond that. Um, so let me ask you this. So even though you're not a 501c3, people yeah. can still support you financially, yes. and that's still tax deductible since you're part Absolutely. of the university, right? Yep. Okay, so I just want to make sure people understand <laughs> they can support you financially and it is tax deductible. Yeah. And that's actually very helpful for you, I would imagine, because you're doing low ticket prices. Exactly. So, um, you know, if we had to make it on ticket prices alone, there <laughs> we'd be out of business. Um, you know, uh, we typically make up our income from exactly what a typical arts organization does from ticket sales and contributions and the endowment. I think what is less typical in a concert series like ours is the endowment. Right. And we can really thank, thank the ladies <laughs> from way back then yeah. for, for getting that started because that is about 70% of our budget. And it's enough that it really gives us a tremendous amount of freedom when we're programming and we don't have to be bound so much by the bottom line, you know, so it's not the first thing we're asking ourselves when we're thinking about who do we want to bring. It's not like how many tickets is this person going to sell? It's right. really about the experience. And if this is someone that has something to say that we think would be relevant and on the series. That's tremendous. Um, so when, when is, when, when is your, what is your typical season? When's it start? When's it end? Um, so we, we follow the academic calendar because we're on campus and part of the university and, you know, having students have the experience of going to a concert is really, really important to our mission. Um, you know, if we are, I think our big goal is that every student come to a concert before they graduate. It doesn't always happen that way, but, um, so we follow the academic calendar, which means that we open mm, kind of middle September and we run through the end of April, early May, and we're off when there are breaks and we take a big break in the middle, just like Princeton does. Um, 
the university, you know, has winter session now in January, and we're still trying, since it's a relatively new thing, we're right. still trying to figure out how we relate to that. Um, but yeah, we're by by this point, we're we've got our season behind us, and we're looking forward to next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So, is, are there a couple things you want to throw out there coming up in the next season? That yeah, yeah. Um, so, I guess I would say that. If you've never come to an event, I would recommend sort of thinking about it in terms of the experience that's best for you. Um, the typical concert series is the Concert Classic Series. That's the one that's been there for 130 years. Um, and that is, you know, about as traditional as it gets in the sense that um, it is a two-hour concert, you know, with one intermission. Um uh, we are kicking off the season with uh, Chanticleer, which is um, one of the oldest men's choirs in the in the country. They are wonderful. Um, they're making their debut on the series. They've never been on the series before, and we're planning on having kind of an a cappella extravaganza. Mm-hmm. Um, Princeton, you know, has a lot of relationship to singing in all sorts of ways, both in in town and and on campus. Um, And Chanticleer is going to be singing one of their traditional programs, which really spans the gamut. They do a little bit of everything. So they sing some Renaissance music and they sing some spirituals and they sing some music that's been composed for them in the last few years by living composers. So you get a real kind of overview. Um, So, you know, if you want to come have kind of a typical concert experience, I would recommend Chanticleer. Um, I would also recommend trying the Up Close series. Um, next year, I, there are lots of notable things happening on that series. One thing that um, I'm really excited about is we are doing a virtual reality concert, which we've never done before. This is kind of a nod to looking forward into the future. What that means is that um, there is a wonderful chamber orchestra based in Europe. They're called the Mahler Chamber Orchestra. They've played on our series before. They don't come to this country very often. When they do, we try to have them. And they made their debut a couple years ago when it was a huge success. Um, This is an interesting experiment in how to have a relationship with them when they can't physically be here. One of the things that they worked really hard on during the pandemic was um, filming their musicians in virtual reality and also capturing the sound in a quality way that kind of mimics what it would be like to be live. So um, this is going to be like a 30-minute sort of installation experience three different pieces of music where people come they put a virtual reality headset on and you are really transported not only to hearing the orchestra but then you have access in a way that you would never have like you can literally almost sit in a musician's lap you can walk around you could lay down in the middle you can you know if if you hear a sound like you hear a trumpet kind of off in the corner because the trumpet is off stage. You can walk in that direction and interact with the trumpet player. Um, so it's a different definition of up close, um, but it's an experiment um, that I think will be really interesting, especially for people who are kind of interested in technology and new technologies. It's a way to use it that um, that we haven't seen a lot of. It is technically the United States premiere of this 
virtual reality project. And I think one of the things that is really great about it for us is that when they were working on this project, they really prioritized the sound above anything else. So I think lots of people have had VR experiences with gaming and stuff where right. it's about the visual world and this is about the sound. Um, so I would recommend trying that. I think up close um, is, is a, is a great first experience. I think um, coming to one of the meditations is, is also a, a really nice way to experience the music in a kind of unusual way. Um, last year, we started a brand new series called Healing with Music. And what we're doing with that series is exploring the intersection between healing and music and exploring music's role in healing from all sorts of things. Um, it seemed like the perfect timing coming out of the pandemic. And that concert series is um, both, it, it, it's it's both performance and conversation. Um, we are kicking off the season next year with two people who probably don't need any sort of introduction. John Batiste, who is, um, you know, phenomenally well-known, incredible musician, band leader, composer, film score writer, um, and his wife, Suleika Jouaud, who was a Princeton alum and, um, just a few years after she graduated from Princeton was diagnosed with leukemia and has gone through two bone marrow transplants and has really used um, what has been an incredibly painful struggle in her life to share with the world. She's a writer. She's written a New York Times bestseller about it. It's called Between Two Kingdoms. And um, it's incredibly inspirational and music and creativity is kind of at the heart of both of their lives and I think has been an essential part of her keeping herself alive and healing and so that the entire series is exploring that but that opening event will be looking at kind of the role that music has played in in what has been a really really difficult health journey for her um yeah so those those are a few that I would recommend Marta, I want to thank you for being with us today. This has really been interesting. It's so great to hear all that Princeton University Concerts has to offer. Thank you for joining us for the 43rd episode of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. Visit our website at princetonpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts.